A faithful friend is a sturdy shelter. He who finds one finds a treasure. A faithful friend is beyond price. No sum can balance his worth. A faithful friend is a life-saving remedy, such as he who fears God will find. For he who fears God behaves accordingly, and his friend will be like himself. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 15. Friendship and the Fathers. After Hours with Mike Aquilina. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly CSO's podcast, where three friends, Andrew, David, and Matt, break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. And this season, we've been reading The Four Loves. And this month, we've been speaking about the love of friendship, in Greek, philia. And in this After Hours episode, I'll be combining two things that I love very deeply, C.S. Lewis and the early church fathers. And I'm going to be speaking to patristic scholar Mike Aquilina. Mike Aquilina lives with his wife, Terry, in the Pittsburgh area with their six children. He is the executive vice president and trustee of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. He has hosted 11 TV series and several documentary films, and is a frequent guest on Catholic Radio. He is an award-winning author of more than 50 books on church history, doctrine, and devotion. And he's here today to talk about his newly released book, Friendship and the Fathers, How the Early Church Evangelized. Mike Aquilina, welcome to Pints with Jack. (laughs) Thanks for having me on. (laughs) All right, Mike, I have a confession. I've been looking for an excuse to have you on the show ever since we started it years ago. Well, I'm flattered. Thank you very much because you have a great show and such a such a, a large footprint. I, I feel like I'm out of my league. <laughs> <laughs> That's very kind of you. Well, I said, I've been wanting to get you on the show for ages. And so when at the end of last season, our listeners chose The Four Loves for the book for season five, I was then overjoyed to soon afterwards, get an email from some Catholic publisher telling me about your book, Friendship and the Fathers, which meant that I not only now had an excuse to have you on the show, it was a really good one. It wasn't contrived at all. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. I'm glad we had that convergence. (laughs) It was perfect. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and also, when I was planning this season, I mentioned to our audio engineer, Taylor Schroll, that we were having you on the show. And I discovered that he also edits your podcast. He does. He does. He does a great job of it. Well, normally we would talk about our guests' podcasts, etc., at the end of the show. But since we've mentioned it now, would you mind telling listeners a little bit about Way of the Fathers? Uh, well, and you mentioned the title. It's Way of the Fathers. That was the title of a blog I started around 2005, 2006. And I continued through around 2011. And then several years passed by, and Thomas Miris at uh, CatholicCulture.org uh, Uh, started nudging me and asking me if I would consider doing a podcast on the fathers. And I told him no. Uh, and I gave him a list of, um, of others who, who would do it better. Uh, but, but Tom, (laughs) Tom kept, kept nudging me. And so finally I, uh, I consented and I've been doing it now, I think for uh, two, two years and a couple of months. Um, it, uh, it, it comes out twice a month and it's about a 20 minute podcast. It focuses on on one of the fathers at a time, one episode per father, and um, and I talk about the works of the fathers uh, as well as you know tell the story of his life. I like to tell stories so that uh, so that you're not getting a high level of abstraction. You can't really do that in 20 minutes, but you can hear the story <laughs> of each father's life and also how each father interacted with the other fathers because sometimes 
they agreed and they did wonderful things together. They had friendships, uh, uh, but also sometimes they disagreed and that made for a lot of humor <laughs> because people say crazy things when they're angry and, uh, <laughs> and, and that, that makes for an exciting and interesting podcast episode as well. So I've been doing it, as I said, for about two years and uh, I think we're, uh, we've got a good following. Mm, I think it's a really great introduction to the fathers if someone doesn't know anything about them here's a nice 20 minutes a couple of times or a couple of times a month for them to begin to enter that world and move through time and know what was going on in the church uh, and the thing that always stuns me whenever i pick up any any work that's introducing the fathers i always learn stuff because there's always stuff that you know not every book covers yeah yes uh you're absolutely right and there's a wealth of information that's just neglected uh, people just aren't aware of it uh once i was on a transatlantic flight i was going from flying from new york to rome um and i was se- seated beside um a, a, an older woman a little bit older than me and uh we struck up a conversation for an introvert uh uh uh, and a transatlantic flight is always a moment of terror, you know? Am I going to have to be in conversation for the entire the entire flight? But this was actually a very enjoyable conversation. She had just retired as a, a librarian, research librarian, at an evangelical seminary. And she asked me what I did for a living. I told her I was a writer. Well, what kind of writing do you do? And eventually, I told her I wrote mostly history, um, uh, mostly about the early church, uh, the first she she asked me what I mean by meant by early church, and I told her, you know, the first seven centuries, and she said, "Do we even know anything about those centuries?" So she she didn't. She was a research librarian. She really wasn't aware of Christianity during those years. I told her, "What if what if I told you that that my office is is lined with floor to ceiling, wall to wall bookshelves uh, that mostly have." works by and about the fathers the early, the early christians and she was she was shocked so i think a lot of people are just unaware of these of these uh these writers uh the early christians lewis certainly was aware of them and he was a great reader of the mm-hmm. fathers and in my podcast on prudentius i was utterly dependent on lewis <laughs> yes i think he was also a fan of augustine and dionysius mm-hmm. those those seem to be the ones that he tends to lean on quite a bit and athanasius he wrote the Yes, he wrote the introduction for Sister Penelope's translation. Yes. Well, let's push on. I am drinking some Earl Grey tea. Uh, do you have anything? I do. I have an IPA from Penn Brewery, which is our, our local establishment. <laughs> I love it when my guest outclasses me. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we toast, I'm sure that some listeners will not have recognized the quotation at the beginning of today's episode. They might think that it sounds a little bit like scripture, but they can't quite place it. And the reason for that is that that the book of Sirach is only in Catholic and Orthodox Bibles. It's part of what we call the Deuterocanon, what Protestants typically call the Apocrypha. And I mention all of this because it wasn't the original quotation I had for this episode. Because after I sent you an email telling you that I wanted you on the show, I immediately started the episode notes. And I chose a quotation from one of my favorite early church fathers as the quote for the episode. (laughs) But when your book finally turned up at my house, I opened it up and I saw that the epigraph was that very quotation that I had chosen. So I immediately went back to my computer and changed it. These can't be the same, can't be the same, but it is a great quotation. So what I'd like to do, if you wouldn't mind reading that quotation, and then we can toast to that. Okay. It's just a little snippet 
uh, of um, of a longer, much longer, beautiful quotation from Saint John Chrysostom. But this is it: "A friend is more to be longed for than light. A friend is sweeter than the present life." I'll drink to that. Cheers. Cheers. So I gave a few pieces of biographical information in the introduction, but would you mind giving us a little five-minute potted history of yourself? <laughs> oh, certainly. I um I grew up in northeastern Pennsylvania coal country, and my father was a member of the United Mine Workers of America, and my mother was also a union member, International Ladies Garment Workers Union. Um, so uh, we were very much working class. Uh, I grew up with a great love of reading, and I and I got that from my dad, who got it from his dad. Um, when my dad grew up. Uh, they were they were my 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 father grew up in rather extreme poverty, uh, but he and his friends could afford to chip in every month a penny apiece, and ten of them could buy a dime novel, and then spend three days poring over it, you know, reading it, and and it, then it would go on to the next guy. My father had a reverence for books. He he one of his lines was, "Our books are our friends." He could never write in a book. For example, something that I do all the time, uh, you know, mm-hmm. um, I've, I've failed him, <laughs> but um, he had a great reverence for books, and um, and he passed that on to his kids. I went to um, Catholic schools all the way through. My parents would not have sent me to anything else. Not that there was much else going on in our our little town. We were almost everybody in town was Catholic. And then I went to Penn State uh, for university, uh, and I got a bachelor's degree in English writing with a minor in religious studies. And at Penn State, I met my wife, and that could very well be the end of the story right there, because <laughs> I feel like like uh, I've just been been at the same level of bliss ever since then. Um, but I guess other things have happened. Uh, I've been working in publishing for uh a lot of years. <laughs> Let me think. <laughs> Since 1983, I've been working in publishing. My wife and I have six children. They're all adults now, um, and we'll be empty nesting as of next week. And wow. um, <laughs> and we have we have six grandchildren. If you count those um, who are due to be born in the the first quarter of this year, uh, and um, and I'm still working in publishing after all these years. Uh, I've. I've worked a, a number of jobs. I've been freelancing since 1996. Hmm. Now, this is a C.S. Lewis podcast, and uh, I've heard, as you mentioned, C.S. Lewis mentioned on your podcast, on the episode about Prudentius's poetry. Uh, but before we proceed, what has actually been your exposure to Lewis? Hmm. Well, you know, when uh, I, I'm a cradle Catholic, uh, but I can't really say I was practicing the faith in high school or at college. Um and uh, and you know a lot of that's for a lot of that I'm to blame, uh, but also it was just the times. Uh, I grew up in the '60s and '70s, and uh-oh. and uh, 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 <laughs> yes, uh oh, um, and 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 the '60s really had uh, uh, an impact on my school uh, where where you know where I got my education, um, primary and and secondary. Uh, uh, for example, uh, we 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 had a chapel in the school, but we also had an awareness room with throw pillows oh. and Ziggy posters and hang in there, baby posters <laughs> on the wall. Right. So that, that, that that's what was going on at the time. And, you know, the 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 our teachers thought that this was youth culture because it was the culture of their youth. But by now they were 35 years old. So they were ancient to us ancient you know so the whole thing seemed 
geezer. You know, it, it was just so passe and um, and it didn't appeal to us. So, you know, a, a lot of my friends just kind of checked out at that time. I certainly did. Um, but an interesting thing happened when I when I was at Penn State, I, I, I kind of got my faith handed back to me by my agnostic professors. Because uh, in order uh, to help us to understand history or art history or literature or just about anything, they needed for us to understand the Catholic faith because it's integral to so many of those stories. So, uh, so yeah, um, they, I, I started to learn about what the faith really was, what was essential to it. So I had kind of uh, an, an awakening then. Um, my best friend at the time uh, had been raised Lutheran. Uh, and was was coming back to a kind of evangelical uh, Christianity. Uh, he was ha having a kind of born-again experience, and he discovered Lewis at that time, so he started sharing Lewis's books with me. The first one I read was Mere Christianity, which really did give me a model for an intelligent Christianity, and it's it's one I could recognize, too. Um, uh, then I read the screw tape letters because that was a natural follow up. It was, it's brilliant. I remember mm -hmm. very early on reading God in the Dock, Letters to Malcolm, uh, his book on prayer and, um, and his reflections on the Psalms. And then I kind of stopped reading Lewis for a while. I was kind of taken up with, with other authors, uh, you know, Jacques Maritain and his wife, Raisa really kind of captured my, my heart, captured my attention and showed me a model for uh, a lay apostolate for Christians in, in our time. So they really, really got my attention. And then I went on to other authors uh, like Joseph Pieper, Etienne Gilson, and others. Um, but I returned later on uh, when my kids were growing up because I read, I read the Chronicles of Narnia to them. And then my kids actually became bigger Lewis fans than I had been. Uh, they, they are the ones who introduced me uh, to other works by Lewis, but also works by 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 the others in Lewis's circle, like Tolkien and um, and uh, Dorothy Sayers, especially my daughter. Mm -hmm. My daughter is uh, somewhat preoccupied with the works of Dorothy Sayers. <laughs> Could do far far worse. <laughs> She's great. Yes, yes. <laughs> you mentioned the Screw Tape Letters. As we were rounding off the Screw Tape Letters last season, that was when I discovered Talking Back by Evagrius of Pontus. I was like, oh. This is basically screw tape letters in the early church. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. No, no, there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> now, you're a well-known speaker and writer about the early church fathers. And if someone was listening to this introduction, they might have got some idea as to who these guys are. And we've actually had Dr. Marcelino D'Ambrosio on last season to talk about them. But for the newcomers to Pints with Jack, can you just explain to them who are the church fathers? And also, how did you come to write so many books about them? Well, they're the great teachers of the early church. Uh, they're witnesses uh, to to the faith, to the doctrine, to the interpretation of Scripture, especially. But they're they're primarily the teachers of the early church, who are who are honored by the church as authoritative, because we know about many figures from those first centuries of Christianity. But these are the figures whose writings we know whose writings have survived, and whose writings we can still study and benefit from today. Uh, so so they, they tend to be intellectuals. They tend to be uh, writers, uh, because we can study them that way now. Uh, the, there's no official list of fathers of the church. There's no process for canonizing the fathers. So it's, it's kind of like 
tradition passes on the idea of who's acceptable as a writer and who's not. Uh, uh, a lot of the lists will contain about 100, 120 to 175 names of those we, we consider fathers of the church and even, even mothers of the church. Most of them were bishops, though. Uh, certainly not all of them. Some of them were priests. Some of them were lay people. Just a few were deacons. Um, their lives, their works are marked by, by four characteristics. You know, the fathers had holiness of life. They were saints. They had uh, a correct doctrine. They were orthodox. They were old <laughs> and antique, <laughs> uh, with antiquity as a third mark. And, um, and fourth is church approval, that they've always been in good standing with the church since the time of their death, that they've been honored as fathers and as authorities ever since. But, you know, they're considered authorities down to our own day. Uh, whenever there's a unanimous consens consensus of the fathers on any issue or any interpretation of scripture, well, then we're bound to accept that. I was chatting with somebody recently, and I was given the specific example of baptismal regeneration. Because mm -hmm. he holds to a tradition where they don't hold to the idea that baptism is the thing that pours you know new life into you, and I was talking about the father saying you find it there universally, you yeah. can't get out of yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Even even in the times when they did, there was a trend of deferring it, deferring baptism toward adulthood. There was a strong belief in baptismal regeneration, and as a matter of fact, that's why they were deferring it till till adulthood because they feared feared being unfaithful to it in adult life. Hmm. So how have you come to write so many books about the early church? <laughs> I guess when I was little, I wanted to be an archaeologist. You know, I, I'd read Schliemann's book about discovering Troy, and I thought, well, you know, I'll just, I'll just, you know, get on an airplane, go someplace, put my spade in the earth, and I'll find gold, or I'll find some amazingly beautiful temple, something like that. And as you get older, you learn that what archaeologists do is, is, you know, kind of stand there with a toothbrush and a toothpick and and uh, and just comb the earth for weeks and weeks and weeks and sometimes months and years before they find you know, something of any significance at all, uh, that it's it's not at all the way I imagined it. Um, uh, so I, I always had a fascination with antiquity. I used to love to buy those time life books with big pictures of things that had been found underground. And I guess I'm still that way. So er, in early adulthood, I liked to read the ancients. Uh, that kind of morphed into a desire to read the early Christians once I had returned to the faith. And then at a certain point in the 90s, my friend Bob Lockwood, who was publisher of Our Sunday Visitor at the time, asked me if I would consider writing a, a low-level introduction to the fathers of the church. And so I did, and that changed my life. I mean, it changed my career. I'd say I've written over 70 books now, and I'll bet you know at least 50 of them have been on the fathers. Wow. <laughs> so I mean that first book showed me that there's a lot of interest out there. You know, you talked in your in your other episodes about Lewis's observation that two friends have to have this this common common object of their attention. They're 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 a common delight that they share and uh and I've made a lot of friends through the father the fathers <laughs> in exactly that way. What I learned from that book and its sales, it continues to be my best-selling book after how many years? A lot of years, almost thirty years, um, but uh, what I what I learned through that book was that there are a lot of people out there who are curious about the the early church and want to know more about it. When we talk about the genesis of our podcast, Matt and I will talk about meeting at a party and talking about Lewis. 
Yes. Because that's what we do at parties. Um, <laughs> and that's absolutely true. But Matt will very often say afterwards that while he thought it was really cool that we both loved Lewis, it was actually when after that we started speaking about the early church because he ah. had just discovered the fathers and just started reading uh, the apostolic fathers. Wow. And they had they had played a huge part in in my conversion and spiritual growth mm-hmm. uh he actually cites the fathers actually as the thing that really bound us together <laughs> yeah that's great that's great and i've had that experience so many times o- over the last 30 years we'll be talking about the contents of your book throughout the rest of this episode but just in a high level overview what will readers discover if they pick up a copy of your new book friendship and the fathers hmm They'll, they'll find out what friendship meant to the early Christians and how it differed from the, um, the ideas about friendship and the experience of friendship that, that, um, that were uh, abroad in the cultures at that time, the Greco-Roman culture. Uh, and and they'll, they'll learn how Christianity set itself apart um, from its, uh, its context, really, and, uh, and, and how Christians experienced something that was very attractive. To their next door neighbors, and they were able to give their next door neighbors something that they could not find elsewhere. <laughs> well, as I mentioned earlier, we've been reading through the four loves this season, and at the moment, we are working our way through the chapter on friendship. And from reading the four loves, I've got some questions for you about friendship, and I'd really love to hear how you'd answer based on your reading of the early church fathers and your study of their their friendships. And at the beginning of the chapter on friendship, Lewis says that while friendship is very much maligned by modern day people, he says it was prized by the ancients. Has that also been your impression? Yes, yes. You know, if you if you look back, I mean, Cicero uh, wrote a famous book on friendship, and Aristotle returned to the idea again and again. Uh, so yes, it was a great desire and a great um, a great uh, joy. Uh, of the ancients, you find that all over the place, and and then it, in the fathers, you you find the fathers themselves going back to Cicero and Aristotle as they consider friendship, but with important differences. So yes, I think that that friendship, the desire for friendship, is always there. It's a natural good, and and we're created with that kind of kind of desire. Um, I don't think it was often fulfilled. Uh, I, I think that the ancients put some strange parameters on friendship made it difficult to cultivate friendships, whereas the, 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 the Christians, the early Christians, were able to get beyond those limitations and uh, to create a, a wider network of friendships. And, um, and, ex- and they, were, they were able to extend friendship and, um, and receive friendship in a, in a greater way because of the model of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself, who, who was friend to so many people, and that manifests in the scriptures everywhere. He changed everything. He changed everything civilizationally, and um, and and that was evident in the friendships of the early Christians. I contend that friendship was the primary means of evangelization in those early centuries. Look, we had no access to media. You could not stand up in the public square and start shouting the name of Jesus and preaching that way. If you did, you'd be dead tomorrow. And that would, you know, your death would lessen your effectiveness a little bit, maybe. Uh, You know, the, the blood of the martyrs is seed and all that. But you know the word would not be getting out it wouldn't the people who witnessed you well it made a difference to them but i believe that where friendship where christianity really had an impact was in friendship 
the friendship of one family for its neighbors, the the friendship of um, one man toward uh, the the guy who had the mar- the stall next to his in the in the marketplace. Um, this this was where Christianity spread, uh, I believe, and and we know that it spread at a at a remarkable rate. Rodney Stark, the great sociologist, tells us that the church grew at a steady rate of forty percent per decade through almost three centuries. 40% per decade. That's that's amazing. It's alarming. And that's at a time when Christianity was a capital crime. This should not be happening. And yet we know it did. I believe it happened primarily because those early Christians were prodigies of friendship because they they shared in the life of Jesus Christ. They tried to imitate the life of Jesus Christ. Now, you've alluded to there being important differences between the way that Christians regarded friendship and made friends in comparison to their pagan neighbors. You spoke about strange parameters that the pagans would put on it. Yes. Remind unpacking that a little bit. How did the Christian conception of friendship differ from that of the pagans? I don't think they were strange parameters. I think that they're the kind of parameters we might want at some level. Here's Cicero, okay? Cicero defines friendship as a perfect conformity of opinions upon all religious and civil subjects, united with the highest degree of mutual esteem and affection. Think about that. A perfect conformity of opinions upon all religious and civil subjects. Now, that doesn't sound like the friendship of C.S. Lewis and Owen Barfield, does it? Right? (laughs) Not at all. Because they had a common interest in all of these great subjects, and they didn't agree on any of them, right? So I, I <laughs> read mean, all the right books and got the wrong thing out of everyone. <laughs> yes, I love that line. You know, and Aristotle says, you know, says that that um that friendship is really hard. It's it's difficult, if not impossible, when uh, when you have two people who are uh, unequal uh, socioeconomically, as we would say today, right? He'd say mm-hmm. when one of the parties is very far separated, as a god is from human beings. Friendship cannot exist. Okay? So these people, you know, a poor man can't be friends with a rich man because then, you know, you have all of these dynamics that creep in and make it difficult, right? You have a certain neediness that's there, uh, a certain lack of trust uh, on the other side, and 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 you just can't proceed to friendship. Well, <laughs> if a god himself, if God himself has taken flesh in order to befriend human beings, then then we know that Aristotle is wrong. And we know that that's true, that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us in order to befriend us. That, that great passage from John 15, 15, no longer do I call you servants. I have called you friends. I have called you friends. That's amazing. So if God can befriend this group, this ragtag group of, of not especially impressive men, well, then we have an obligation. If we, if we want to say we're followers of Christ, if we want to say we're other Christs, as, as we believe we are through baptism and the anointing, you know, we are chrismated, you know, we, we become Christ to the world. Well, if we want to say we believe in those things, then we have to imitate Christ. We have to let him act through us. We have to make friends the way he did. And, and not put the kind of restrictions on friendship that Aristotle and Cicero wanted to impose. Hmm. Now, in The Four Loves, Jack talks about how friendships come about. In, in the way that he constructs his chapter, he says that, first of all, 
There needs to be some companionship through shared activities or interests. And then he says that friendship grows out of this. He says it's when two or three discover that there is some common insight or interest or taste that they share. And he says the typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what, you two? I thought I was the only one. Do you see anything like that in The Fathers? Oh yes, and that's why that's why you find that um, that uh, so so many of the stories of the fathers are driven by friendship. Okay, for example, you you, you encounter uh, Basil and Gregory. Okay, they met when they were very young, and they realized that they they both loved study. They both loved scholarship. They both loved Jesus Christ, and they both had an interest in the ascetical life. So what did they do? They became roommates when they were doing their studies at Athens, and uh, and they, they followed a common life of prayer and study, and the friendship really did <laughs> really did endure to varying degrees, uh, because both of them were difficult men. Uh, but they, their their friendship did endure to varying degrees to the to the rest of their lives lives, um, and uh, and and boy, uh, just talking about that one friendship could could take up the rest of the episode. But um, but th- there were many other ep- examples of that. You read the life of Augustine, read his autobiography, and it's really a story of friendships, one friendship after another. The friendships that were destructive to him, and the friendships that were that were fruitful for him but his life is is just a series of these episodes that are really about friendship he has his conversion in the company of friends and it's his friends that are provided the pro- providing the preconditions for it and they're the ones who are egging him on it's their conversation <laughs> that's bringing along his conversion there are so many exciting stories like this in in, in the fathers and I'll, I'll mention augustine again too just because what a prodigy of friendship he was uh, you know, he he had so many friends when he was when he was a kid. When he went to college, his friends moved to Carthage so that they could be near him. They could stay near him. They could not imagine a life without their friend Augustine. And then he moved to Rome, and his friends moved there too. They got on ships and they they went to Rome. And then he moved to Milan, and they moved there as well. And he moved back to Africa, and. And and he, they moved with him just because they couldn't imagine a life without this friend. And eventually, some of them were ordained priests, and they lived with him for the rest of their lives. Uh, you know, Augustine is a certain model of friendship, and he spent his entire life pondering what friendship is and what it means. Now, I can't let you say all those wonderful things about Augustine without also mentioning that uh, he gave the wrong time to his mother when he was departing from court because he didn't want her to follow. But St. Monica did it anyway because she's that kind of a woman. <laughs> she really she really was. She shows us perseverance, perseverance in prayer, but also in this interest in her son. You know, now a mom can call her son, her wayward son, to keep the line of conversation open that way. but. In the fourth century, that was not possible. So she was not about to close off that conversation, that communication, and she was not about to stop seeing her grandson. So she (laughs) got on a ship right after his, and she followed him, got to Rome. He wasn't there, proceeded to Milan. She found him there. Oh, that's wonderful. You can run, Gus, but you can't hide. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you mentioned about Cicero's parameters for friendship, this complete agreement on everything. And one of the things that Lewis says in The Four Loves, which I think surprises many people, 
and it's definitely contrary to modern thinking and in the days of cancel culture, that friends don't actually have to agree on everything, and that's yes. okay. And yes. we mentioned Owen Barfield. They argued often, but they were friends because the same things were important to them. The same questions were important to them, even if they disagreed about the answers. Do we have some examples of warring friends in the early church? <laughs> we certainly do. I mentioned Basil and Gregory, and and they really did have a difficult friendship. Uh, Gregory tended to be passive, and he liked to ponder things. And he was one of these guys who could never make up his mind, or at least it took him a long time. There's not a lot of evidence of him making up his mind about anything. He'd always be on the one hand, on the other hand, and 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 he just wouldn't get around to making taking a decisive step. Basil, on the other hand, was a man of action. He was also very intelligent. He was also given to contemplation. He was also a man who, who, who had reasons for doing what he did, and he knew those reasons. But he really knew that at a certain point, prudence demands action. Prudence is not eternal indecision. Um, and, and Gregory often allowed himself um, to be pushed around by strong people like Basil who would try to get him to make up his mind and do something now. Uh, his, uh, Bez, uh, Gregory's dad was the same way. And so he got bullied into, into um, uh, orda- ordination to the priesthood, and he resented it afterwards. And he carried around that grudge, that wound. And then Basil bullied him into becoming a bishop, and he consented. But then afterwards, he would get all emo about it, and he would, he would, he would just be... be, be resentful, you know, and he carried around that resentment for the rest of his life. Uh, he eventually gave the uh, the eulogy for Basil after Basil's death, and it's 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 a masterpiece of of biography from the from antiquity. But you know, at that time, it's it's as if the wound w- was still fresh. In the end, he admits that Basil was probably right about everything, but still, <laughs> he 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 had that wound. Uh, so there was a difficult friendship. You know, and then I also use the example of of Jerome and and, and Augustine. <laughs> I was just about to say that you stole my stole my line. I mean, you could really do a chapter about Jerome and and anyone really because he was such an irascible person that he managed to alienate many friends in the course of his life, often deliberately alienate them. Uh, he was. <laughs> He was he was early to cancel, um, but uh, but but his 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 relationship with Augustine is interesting because Augustine was such a diplomatic man, and and he was such a, a such a, a suave, smooth letter writer that he did not allow that kind of um, that kind of rancor to develop. So they did gradually bring about a friendship. It was a, a, a an epistolary friendship. Uh, they did not meet in person, but they um, they were able to become friends uh, in the course of their letters and to and to develop a mutual esteem. I first heard about the story of Gregory and Basil. I think it was in the Office of Readings. So, for people that aren't from liturgical churches, there are uh, set readings and prayers that you can make throughout the day, and one of these set prayers is called the Office of Readings, and it very often has an extended quotation from the early, early church fathers. And I didn't think I'd been doing it very long before I came across that homily where Gregory is praising Basil. And it's absolutely gorgeous. And it It really got me interested in the Cappadocian fathers. And I actually remember in the run-up to deciding to propose to my then-girlfriend, hearing about the question that was asked of Basil, whether it was better to be a solitary 
uh, a monk by himself or whether it was better to live in community. And Basil responds that it's actually probably better to live in community because otherwise, whose feet would you wash? Hmm. Yes. Uh, uh, I, I, um, I love Cardinal Newman's rather extensive treatment of the friendship of Basil and Gregory in, um, I believe it's in his book, The Church of the Fathers. It's, 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 it's very long and it's very sensitive. You know, he really does have a deep understanding of both personalities, uh, how they came together and then how they, they fractured and then how they mended imperfectly, but, but nonetheless, they did mend. Now, in The Four Loves, Lewis spends quite some time addressing the value of friendship, asking whether it's beneficial to society or the individual, um, and whether it has survival value or whether it simply adds value to survival. Uh, given your recent study of the fathers, how would you respond to that question? Hmm. Well, I, I think it does. <laughs> it does make for uh, it, it makes for a more livable world, and uh, and that's what what. Um, what was evident, I think, in the um, the social world of the early fathers, that uh, that people looked at Christians collectively, and they said, "See, see, see how they love one another," um, hmm. because they saw that they cared for everyone without distinction. You know, you did not have to be the same social class. They reached out to you. They they um, they they gave charity to the um, the. The people who were in prison, uh, people who were who were enslaved in the mines, um, people who were begging on the streets, people in the orphanages and and in the hospices, that sort of thing. Uh, it was evident to others that they loved one another, and they were living in a better social world than everyone else was living in because of that love. That they mm. that even if they didn't have as much money as others. They had something that was more precious and something something worth having. Having, uh, I, I believe that's how a lot of conversions happened because people saw what was possible. They looked at at the bond between Christians and they said, "I want a piece of that because I'm not getting that in the world where I live right now." Hmm. Now, in his book, Jack also spent some time talking about friendship between the sexes, and you've briefly mentioned the church mothers earlier. So, would you mind? telling us who, who some of these people were, and do we see friendships between the men and the women in the early church? Well, the most famous uh, of, the, of the early Christian mothers uh, would be Perpetua of Carthage, North African woman, very young, uh, a new mother, uh, and uh, a young married woman. And we have her prison diary, you know, the, the, the notes she took down of, of her experience of prison, her estrangement from her father, who wanted her to to renounce her Christianity and save her life, but also her relationships um, with the the other um, the other prisoners, uh, who were mostly male, although her closest friend among them was Felicity. So I think I think that there is a tendency um, for us to have friendships with people of the same sex, but uh, but it doesn't rule out the possibility. Of friendships with the opposite sex, and and that's evident in that earliest document. Um, you can see it also in um, in Gregory of Nyssa's life of of um, of his sister Macrina, uh, mm. that that um, that she had profound friendships with uh, with members of both sexes. Uh, so you know those those are, those are just two examples. Uh, uh, Monica would be another. You mentioned her her earlier, and 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 we can see 
the the beautiful maternal kind of affection she had for Augustine's friends, that she became an integral member of their community, a part of their philosophical dialogues, even though she very likely could not read. And yet, Augustine referred to himself as his her disciple, and 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 uh, and and he called he called her his greatest teacher, the most influential teacher in his life. And if you read the dialogues, you find that she often has the last word, that she <laughs> often solves the knotty problem that they've been trying to untie through this, you know, through their intellectualism and failing at it. And at the end, she comes out and she says, why don't you come in to lunch? <laughs> and then she so, she says something that solves their, their problem. Uh, uh, she's another figure like that, where we see her interacting there with mostly males um and uh and and they have something that's obviously a great friendship uh, not only not only between sexes but between generations we had a patron event yesterday we had a big tea with all of our supporters online and one of one of our supporters has a son called benedict and i saw this little girl in the background and so i immediately asked is your daughter called scholastica uh, <laughs> And that's another pairing. You have a, a brother and a sister who have the yes. bonds of storgy affection, yes. familiar relationship. But you get the impression they're also very clear friends. And it was the, their faith that bound a lot of that together. And one of the stories that I heard is absolutely adorable. They were She was visiting from her convent and they were having a late night conversation about the spiritual life. And she wanted to carry on and he was kind of done and wanted to go home. And so she put her head down on the table and prayed. And then suddenly this big thunderstorm starts out. <laughs> <laughs> this big thunderstorm starts outside and he says, sister, what have you done? <laughs> <laughs> That's a beautiful story. That's a beautiful story. And and yes, friendship is possible in all circumstances. Uh, you don't need friendship with your siblings, but often it does arise anyway. Mm -hmm. Now, in the last part of Jack's chapter on friendship, he explains how friendships strengthen friends against the outsiders. He actually gives the example of the early church. He says, the little pockets of early Christians survived because they cared exclusively for the love of the brethren, and they stopped their ears to the opinion of the pagan society all around them. And I was hoping you'd fill this out a little bit, given your knowledge of this area. How did the early church, and how did the early Christians, how did they relate to pagan society? And how did they uh, organize themselves and strengthen each other so that they could survive? I have to take exception to something he said because at least the way he said it, uh, we'd probably agree on in principle on 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 on, on what he was saying. But um, but they didn't really stop their ears. Uh, they really hmm. did listen, and they were they were uh, intensely aware of what the pagans were saying about them uh, because there were urban legends running around at the time, mm -hmm. and and there were uh, and and there were great misunderstandings about certain Christian doctrines, especially. Uh, the doctrine of the Eucharist and um, and the, um, the, pra the 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 practice the liturgical practice the practice of worship at, in, of in the early church there were all kinds of rumors false rumors that went around and and you even find them repeated in the popular plays of the time that Christians were associated with with orgies and with cannibalism and 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 all sorts of horrible things so so they didn't stop their ears they were aware of these things. But they, they did develop apologetic responses to them. Uh, when we think of apologetics today, we often think of Tertullian, who really was not out to make friends. 
All right. You know, he was he was kind of a Don Rickles type, if anything. You know, he, he didn't care if he alienated you. He was going to be blunt. He was going to talk about how stupid your myths were and how stupid your culture is. And he really, as I said, didn't care about alienating the others. But the other apologists were not like that. Uh, especially you look at Justin Martyr, who has such a a warm approach to what we now call the pagans, you know, the 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 wider culture there, the, the Greco-Roman culture. And Justin, Justin would approach them with appreciation for the good things that were out there. You know, he mm. even went so far as to baptize these things and called Socrates a proto-Christian. You know, he he was he was anticipating Christ. These are seeds of the word that we find in, in the ancients. Uh, so so there is that way of approaching the culture. Tertullian was an effective apologist in his way, but that's not the only the only way to do apologetics. And it's it it really was probably not the most effective way of doing it. So now I've forgotten your question, making my, well, my fine distinction. I'll, I'll, I'll bring it back in a moment, but on yeah. Tertullian, uh, he was famous for saying, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Basically, why are you bringing all of this Greek philosophy and thought in? We just stick yes. to revelation. That's all we need. Um, but uh, I remember when at the first time I encountered a prescription against heretics, where he basically argues that if you're not attached to the church, I don't care what your opinion of scripture is or your interpretation of it, because this is ours, not yours, now go away. And <laughs> in many ways, he is probably the best exemplary of what Lewis is talking about here in terms of stopping your ears. He really didn't care. Yes. At the same time, he had received a remarkable classical education, and mm -hmm. he, more than the others, was arguing according to the form like a virtuoso. He was using <laughs> the, the pagan inheritance, so to speak, against the pagans. He was better at it than they were. Uh, so as much as he said he didn't care what Athens, what Athens had to offer, he made a lot of what Athens gave him. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything else you want to say about how the early church related to pagan society or how Christians strengthened one another through their friendships as they're enduring all this persecution and opposition? You know, the chapter, my favorite chapter of the book is the chapter about a man, an author, an ancient Christian author, almost no one has heard of, mm. Marcus Minucius Felix. Thanks. I have heard from so many readers of this book They'll, they'll come up to me and they'll, they'll like take me by the lapels and say, Marcus Minucius Felix. I had never heard of this guy. Why have I never heard of this guy? And it's true. He's, he's, he's one of the, the early Christians whose story is most remarkable and whose, whose one writing that has survived is, is even more remarkable. Okay. And, and, uh, it shows us, it doesn't just tell us how Christians related to pagans. It shows us. The story is a brief memoir uh, that he wrote upon the death of his friend Octavius, right? And it's it's a memoir of just a weekend vacation they took, a holiday vacation. Marcus was a, a prominent lawyer in Rome, maybe a judge. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and Octavius was also uh, in the legal profession. And the third man, Cecil, probably was as well. And so they went for a vacation during one of these pagan holidays, and they went to Ostia, one of my favorite places on earth. And what happens is that the pagan, Cecil, blows a kiss 
to this statue of a of of a Roman god who was standing by, and Octavius speaks up against that, and he said, "I I cannot be silent. Uh, you know, don't you realize that's that's dead? That that that." God does not know that you just blew a kiss to it. Um, it's uh, it's just an idol. It's a dead idol. And 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 then a kind of silence falls on the, the the trio, and you can tell because Marcus starts noticing the children who are skimming stones on the on the water in the distance. All of these other little <laughs> details of the scene. Uh, but anyway, what happens from there? To make a long story short, is that they they do what lawyers do. They have an argument, but they they have it with respect. It's frank. They can be hard on each other, but but they they they're they're doing this respectfully. They're carrying forward a conversation. By the end of their weekend together, Cecil has converted to Christianity. He said to to Marcus, "You don't have to make a judgment in this debate. You know, I'm ready to to accept baptism." Essentially, so it's a remarkable thing uh, that they um. That they have this conversation over the course of a weekend, a friendly conversation. No one mentions Jesus Christ. No one mm. quotes from Scripture. And yet, by the end of it, Cecil is ready to convert to Christianity because of the witness of Octavius. And that great emphasis on natural theology. It, it, yes. It is kind of strange reading it that we don't even get to all of the good news. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that simply, that simply a refutation of paganism and a declaration of monotheism seems to do the job pretty well. He was scratching where, where, um, where Cecil itched, right? Uh, he, he realized that, that it would do no good to start quoting scripture at him if scripture had no authority, you know, mm -hmm. in, in Cecil's worldview. Uh, what he needed to do was, was, demonstrate for him uh, that the uh, the urban legends are untrue. That was important. Get past those urban legends about Christians, but also that monotheism makes sense and that Christian morality makes sense uh, and that pagan morality is not working and it never has. Hmm. That's so good. It was definitely one of my favorite parts of the book. I will definitely admit to that. Well, we are drawing near the end of our time. And so I wanted just to give you the microphone just to make a pitch for your book and why yep. people should read The Early Church Fathers. And uh, perhaps as a little bit of inspiration, I just wanted to read a section from the very end of Lewis's chapter on friendship, where he talks about, we're often very proud of our own friends, but you know, a few changes in circumstances, going to different school, it would put us in a very different orbit. And he makes the point that for Christians, nothing is an accident. And he says that friendship is the instrument by which God reveals to each the beauties of all the others. At this feast, it is he who has spread the board, and it is he who has chosen the guests. It is he, we may dare to hope, who sometimes does and always should preside. Let us not reckon without our host. You know, uh, one thing I hope people will learn about the fathers um, from my book is that they were open to friendship. And they were open to friendship wherever they might find it. Uh, they they had that kind of openness, and they they were rejecting the kind of tribalism that um, that Cicero recommended and that Aristotle mm. took rest in. All right, uh, Aristotle, you know, thought that the chasm between classes was just too great, and Cicero thought the same thing. 
But the Christians were open to friendship. They were open to friendship universally. There's a great, great quote I love from St. Jose Maria Escrivá in the 20th century. He said, out of 100 people, we are interested in 100. <laughs> and I think that's the way we're supposed to be. Um, you know, there are all these programs on evangelization right now. You can go to these classes online. You can take a quiz and all that stuff. And you can get certified, you know. Uh, but I don't think evangelization is a program so much as a, a virtue. It, and it's a virtue of friendship. It's the habitual disposition to befriend others. And for some of us, it's difficult. I'm a very shy person. I am an extreme introvert. And all of this has just been kind of confirmed and cemented because, because I work from home and we've homeschooled all our children. So I hardly ever get on my pajamas. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I have to get beyond myself a little bit in order to be like Christ and in order to let Christ live in me in his accustomed way. Um, and that's what I want to do. That's what the fathers did. And I think that's what they give a model of. And it's not just one kind of life. You get through this book, you're seeing a lot of different personalities. You're seeing curmudgeons and you're seeing very warm figures. You're, you're finding a real range of humanity. But you're finding that, that what, they, what they have in common is that they're open to this reality because Jesus was. And uh, you find a lot of different ways to follow after them. I believe that in our time, there is more than a shortage of friendship. There's a famine right now. It's a famine. There's a great need for friendship. There's an epidemic of loneliness going, going on. And I think we have to recognize that and, and look to the opportunities for relieving that. Um, you know, we, we've we've all survived this pandemic, and we were cheering on the people who were trying to find ways to advance a cure or a way to prevent it or whatever. Um, but this, I think, is the is the greater the greater pandemic right now. It's it's that there are so many lonely people who live in my neighborhood, who live on my block, and I don't know their names, and I should be ashamed of myself for that. You know, we have to look for these opportunities to to make friends, um, make friends for Christ, and to be Christ to, to our friends. Um, I mentioned uh, in my book that there's a longitudinal study on friendship um, that that shows it started in the 80s and went into the early 2000s, and it showed that there had been a fairly steep decline in the practice and the experience of friendship during that time. I can't imagine that the situation has improved since then. Since I'd say in the the fifteen years or so since then, or more maybe, um, we've even retreated into the kind of pre-Christian tribalism that that was prescribed by by both Cicero and Aristotle. So I think we have a lot to overcome, but we have good models for overcoming it. And I'm hoping that in my book, Friendship and the Fathers, people are going to encounter those models and then follow after them. Beautiful, Mike Aquilina. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Hey, thank you for having me. I am honored to be here, and I'm very grateful for your hospitality. Well, I hear the call for final drinks. So to wrap things up, where can people go to find out more about you and your work? Uh, the best place to find about me is fathersofthechurch.com. Fathersofthechurch.com. That's my website, my personal website. I don't do a good job of keeping it up. Um, but you'll <laughs> always find my latest books at catholicbooksdirect.com catholicbooksdirect.com and you'll usually find them there at the best price um so if you go there and just search on my name 
they have a page that's just all my titles that are still in print and how to get them. And of course, there's still Way of the Fathers, which you can listen to on all of the appropriate podcast networks. Thanks again to Mike for coming on the show. Thanks to all of our listeners, patron supporters, particularly our top tier supporters, Anonymous, Bill and Joanna, Snort, Bud, Shane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David, and Rowdy. As always, please check out pineswithjack.com for all of the latest information and articles. And please join us next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>